your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Two wideouts to the left. Mills in the backfield with Martinez. Adrian gets the snap, gives it off to Mills. Mills picks away. He's to the 40, 45, 50, 45, 40, 35, 30. Tight rope to the sideline, steps out of bounds, inside the 30-yard line. Jadrick Mills has been a man today here in Lincoln. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Yep, we're here another week of Sports Holiday. We're that much closer to Big Ten football getting going. In fact, the Big Ten released start times for the opening week and some Friday games, the Huskers game with the Iowa Hawkeyes. Yes, sir, it'll be on Big Friday. Black Friday. Big game, Black Friday. So the day after Thanksgiving, Huskers will be in Iowa City to play. They they didn't set a game time for that one, but... Uh, there will be Friday games, five of them total in the league, one of those being the Huskers game of the Iowa Hawkeyes. There is a Friday game to start the schedule a week from this Friday at Camp Randall as the Badgers will host the Illinois Fighting Illini. So that's when that will be the first game of Big Ten football in 2020. Uh, I know the rest of the league was getting a little panicky because as and before today, nobody other than the Huskers and the Buckeyes knew what time they were playing week one. I don't know why it took so long. Don't I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably been set for a while, but it did take a, a little bit of time. It finally everybody knows their week ones. And apparently, other than the games that they announced today, they're going to be on Fridays. I think they also set the start time for the Ohio State-Michigan game at the end of the year. It's going to be a 12-day advance is what they're going to wait to give each week's game times out. Not that that matters to a lot of folks because nobody can go to games, right? But at least you can set your party, your own tailgate times up. All right, here's what we have on the program tonight. Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald is going to join us. We'll get his thoughts about what he has seen around college football. He also loves to dive into the NBA. Their season came to an end last night with the Lakers pummeling the heat in game six. They win that series 4-2 and yet another title for LeBron James. So we'll get into all that with Dirk coming up a little bit later on in the hour. Our number two, Adam Rittenberg, always stops by on Monday from ESPN.com. He covers college football. We'll get his take on a wild and high-scoring weekend in college football, particularly in the SEC, um, which the games were just out of control. We'll see if Adam has a thought about how that happened. We will continue, and we're starting to wind them down, our series of reports as we go around the Big Ten. Brought to you by Sinclair Oil. We check in on the Badgers, the week two opponent for the Big Red, uh, the first home game for Nebraska coming up at the end of the month. Well, that we'll have our weekend rewind and hour three, and we'll have our weekend winners also in the third hour of the program. That will keep track of the baseball playoffs, which game two is about to wrap up out in San Diego of the ALCS, although the bases are loaded now with two away and the Rays leaning by two runs over the Astros and in about an hour, Game one with the Braves and the Dodgers with actual fans in the stands for that one down in Arlington. Uh, They've sold up to 12,500 tickets for that game, so there will be some folks in there actually clapping, not just the cardboard cutouts like we've seen for pretty much everything else except for college football in the South. So we'll keep an eye on that and the Monday night football matchup between the Chargers and the Saints. So full show for you here tonight. And as always, phone lines open for you, 531-500-4686, or if it's more convenient for you, 
You can fire us off a text, that very same number, on our U.S. Cellular text line. Proud to be the official wireless sponsor of the Huskers, U.S. Cellular Connecting Husker Nation. And before I bring Ben in, it has gone final in San Diego. The Rays win it 4-2. They now have a 2-0 lead in that best-of-seven series. All right, Ben, Tim had this in the ticker. Nebraska picks up a local commit this afternoon. And James Carney from Norris High School. Another tight end for this class. So three of the last four commitments for Nebraska have been tight ends. Thomas Fedoni from Council Bluffs, A.J. Rollins from Creighton Prep, and now James Carney from Norris. Carney, 6'5", 222, listed as a three-star, came down to Nebraska, K-State, and Iowa. This is one, what, 15 miles from Memorial Stadium. This is one you certainly want to tidy up and bring into the full what's your what's your scouting take on james carney yeah interesting prospect you know six foot five so so obviously a good size and you know i think my biggest takeaway with this commitment uh, not only are they three tight ends um but they're three local guys i know fedoni um you know across the river but i i, I love the fact that you know nebraska is able to keep these these home products here uh, particularly Fedoni in the state of Iowa and, and obviously Rollins here in Omaha and, um, and James Carney at Norris High School in Firth. I, I just feel like there has been so much made in years past about what Iowa has brought to the tight end position. And we all see Noah Fant and the career that he's starting to have in the NFL with the Denver Broncos and how big of a thorn in the side of the Huskers he was when you know he was playing at Iowa, making some big plays and um, I think I, I think we all kind of still have that image of, you know, him celebrating in the end zone, um, in, in that corner of the end zone where Iowa runs out of the tunnel uh, and kind of, you know, getting after the Huskers a little bit with a celebration. I feel like we kind of have that bitter taste in our mouth because of, of that. And to see TJ Hawkinson um, go to the, to the next level with Detroit and start to do good things, it's nice to see Nebraska – uh, bring some prospects in here that that can be game changers. I'm not going to say that any of these three could be uh, or are going to be a, a guy like Noah Fan or TJ Hawkinson or first round draft picks. But what I am saying is Iowa wanted all of these guys. And the fact that Nebraska was able to keep them here with the track record that the Hawkeyes have, I think is a great thing. I think not enough respect is given around here to Sean Becton and the job that he's able to do with this staff um, you know his recruiting efforts, not just locally with with his position, but uh, in the state of Florida and the Southeast. You know Ryan Held get, certainly gets his praise, as does Travis Fisher. But it's time for us to start putting respect to, to the name of Sean Becton and what he's able to do as well. Um, his room is loaded. It, it, I don't think we've ever um, been in a bad shape with tight end since this staff has been here. And I think you know the additions that they've made have been good ones. I think we're yet to see uh, the full complement of what a tight end can do in this offense. I think we've we've seen flashes. We've seen, um, you know, plays where Jack's – I remember going to play at Northwestern when we lost that heartbreaker in Evanston where Jack Stoll, you know, lined up, you know, it, it, basically as a fullback and just shot right up the middle. You know, there, there are things that, that the staff wants to be able to do with tight ends that is going to make all of these prospects both – uh, current and future interesting so I think that's that's the sell to guys like AJ Rollins and Thomas Fedoni and even a guy like James Carney who is the third tight end to commit and that could be a, a deterring factor to a lot of kids to say 
you know, sometimes you don't even get one a class, but you're bringing three in my class alone. I, I don't want to go there. I want to go someplace where I, I know I'm going to play. It sounds like, you know, based on some of the comments and, and quotes I've seen from Carney, that he's embracing this challenge and wanting to go compete and wanting to have to earn his spot. That's a pretty mature way to look at look at it this day and age when kids are so flighty and when they don't see or or you know find a path to where they're they're going to get on the field right away without having to work for it they're going to go find someplace else to play so that's kind of my initial thought and I know that's more of a general thought not necessarily you know pinpointed to James Carney but um, I admire his tenaciousness and wanting to come here um, you know he, he obviously grew up here and grew up a big Husker fan but him embracing the challenge of this competition. And that's going to be a very crowded tight end room with some very talented bodies, and you better bring it every day if you're going to find yourself on the field. But I also believe for as much talk as there has been about the lack of production and bodies at the wide receiver room, Nebraska can really start to get creative with their tight ends. And we're starting to see that at the next level in the NFL with you know multiple tight ends being successful for a particular offense. Um, and, and we'll just kind of go from there. But this is good news today. You beat out Iowa for a local kid. It's a good day. And I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. 19th commitment to the class, according to rivals, it moves the team ranking to 16th in the country with the addition of Carney to this class. And, again, we believe this class is going to fall somewhere between 20 and 22. So if these commits hold, and that's a big if because we're still two months away, a little more than two months away from the early signing period, Still could have movement, could have some decommitments as you make your way through this thing. So uh, you, you can't stop. you got to keep cranking away, and I'm sure the staff is doing that. And you're right, could be a crowded room. There's already talk, people trying to speculate, does somebody move positions? We'll let the coaches figure that out. You get these guys here, then you make the move from there. Delighted now to be joined by Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald. You can read Dirk's work at Omaha.com. Good evening, Dirk. How are you tonight? Now, Greg, you contacted me uh, saying that you wanted to talk NBA and Husker football, but I know better. I know this is all about the French Open and Rafa Nadal, and I'm one of the only people that will come on your show and talk about that. So. Yeah, you, you smoked me out. Here's <laughs> you, we, we do a little uh, buy-sell segment on Wednesday nights, and I, I'm an idiot, Dirk, because I sold Rafa winning the, the French. I'm like, he, he's not playing well. He got smoked in the tournament before this. I sold it. Can you believe that? I sold it. I, I really thought Joker would get him this time, but man, he Greg, got... that's that that first set and a half is Woo! is as good as I think I've seen Rafa play at the French Open, which is or maybe that's recency bias, but crazy nonetheless. What a great great finish! Uh, and, and you know, the next French is what seven months away. I mean, he's got a chance to do it again uh, before he really gets too much longer in the tooth. But yeah, he's. He's terrific. I, I've kind of been a Rafa fan overfed this whole time. I, I really appreciate both of them, but I've kind of leaned more to Rafa. But, yeah, great stuff. And, and you're right. You, you, you're you one of the few guys in the media that I can really have a nice conversation about tennis. Most people don't they it laugh. Kind of a, it was kind of a weekend for the old guys, you know. I mean, LeBron is 35 and Rafa's 34. And uh, I just – I really – Maybe it's because I'm getting old too, but I just I really admire the longevity of guys like that. I mean, what they have to do to put their bodies through that over and over and over, uh, you know. And, and we talked about Alex Gordon a few weeks uh, ago. You know, I know you did too, and, and it was the same type of deal. Just the just the discipline that it takes to to put your body in condition to win like that at that age is is just pretty uh, awe inspiring. 
the you know LeBron and let's go there next. I mean, I, I think most people felt like when the bubble got created, the Lakers would be the favorite to win this thing with what they looked like back in March. But th- the consistency that he has had to get franchises, whether it's Cleveland, Miami, Cleveland again, or now the Lakers to the finals and win as much as he has, that's remarkable, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I know the six finals losses are are a smudge on his resume with some people, but, but I don't necessarily look at it that way. I think the fact that he's put himself in that position, you know, 10 times uh, is just amazing to me. And in this case, what amazed me, yes, he was great. And, you know, the triple doubles and, uh, basically leading his, his team in every statistical category almost every night was amazing. But but the, the level that he got everybody else to play at, I mean, their supporting cast, aside from Anthony Davis, was, was almost a joke back in the winter and the spring. Uh, you know, those guys, you know, from Dwight Howard to to Caldwell Pope, I mean, they're just they just didn't look like they were – they belonged anywhere near an NBA finals. And, and last night you watch them and, you know, they're just all over the floor and they're, you know, every, every rebound they're, they're running the fast break and it was just incredible. And I think that's probably one of his gifts, very similar to magic Johnson. Uh, and, and obviously Michael had a way of doing it too, but it was a little bit different style where you can just lift everybody else up. And I thought it was really on display in this finals because I think if you would have taken at the start of the finals, if you would have said, okay, of the top, you know, 10 guys in this series, how many are Heat players and how many are Laker players? I think I would have said six or seven are Heat players. Um, But LeBron just got, he got his, you know, his three through eight or his three through 10 to really, really step up and play at a high level, especially defensively. And I think that's one of his best traits is just what he does for everybody else around him. He always plays too. You can, he very rarely misses time because of injuries. And we talked about Nadal earlier. He he's had problems staying healthy enough to play, but for LeBron Dirk and as hard as he plays and as much punishment as he gets from the opposition, it's remarkable to me that he's held up. His body is held up the way it has. I totally agree. I mean, with one exception last year, there was kind of a, you know, that might've played out differently had the Lakers had a better team and, you know, he felt a little more motivated to get back, but, but I'm with you. I mean, just the Greg, he's played three additional NBA seasons. I mean, that's, you know, he's played 240 playoff games, uh, 260 playoff games. And, and, you know, that's, that's going back to 2003. I mean, that's the equivalent of, of almost 20 seasons of NBA basketball, and he's still arguably the most athletic player on the court. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. And, and frankly, he doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. I mean, I think, you know, at some point his body gonna, is going to give out somehow, and he's going to have to accept a lesser role. Uh, and, you know, Anthony Davis will probably become the number one guy on that team at some point, but even after after the series we just watched, that looks like that could still be, you know, two years away. Uh, it's just remarkable. What do you think's left to motivate him? And, and I guess I could use the same thing with Tom Brady. Why keep going? Well, I mean, what what's left for you to accomplish? What do you think it is for LeBron? Well, I'm sure he is. He's got his eyes on six championships uh, because I think he probably thinks that if he can get to six. Uh, you know, he's 
he's got the the case of the best of all time. Uh, and, and I think it's such an interesting debate that people had a lot today and, and they'll continue to have over the next couple of years. You know, Jordan's was, I don't think Jordan, uh, nobody ever matched Jordan in terms of how good he was at his peak, but, but LeBron's longevity, uh, I think, you know, creates a really interesting discussion. So I think for LeBron, it's, it's being the greatest of all time for Brady. You know, I don't know. It's just, he, he finds a way to, uh, you know, to sort of create a chip on his shoulder. And, and I think both of those guys love the process so much. They just love the day-to-day competitiveness. Uh, I'm not sure Brady's at a high enough level to make another run at it, but I think he just loves the, you know, the grind so much. Uh, he's almost put in his own head, hey, I'm going to play till I'm 45 and uh, I don't care who tells me no. So part of the part of the, the wonder of their competitiveness is sort of, finding doubters where few doubters exist. Uh, but I think, you know, in their in both of their minds, I think they'll probably want to go another two or three years at least. Visiting with Dirk Chatlin of the Omaha World Herald. You can read his work online at omaha.com. Um, speaking of great, all-time greats, uh, the, the city of Omaha has had a double blow here in the last month of losing some of their all-time greats in Bob Gibson and Gail Sayers. You did that wonderful piece about those two and, and others growing up on the north side of Omaha. Uh, man, it's unbelievable that those guys grew up together and then they both deceased relatively close to the same time. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, nine days apart, uh, born eight years apart. You know, they, they didn't grow up uh, knowing each other closely until they got a little bit older, uh, but they really, you know, became friends and, um, just inspired a whole generation of guys underneath them, you know, from Johnny Rogers to uh, Marlon Briscoe to to dozens of others who, you know, went on to play college and professional sports. Uh, Gibson and, and Sayers were, were the gold standard. And I think, uh, you know, it wasn't just the what they did. It was sort of how they did it. I think because of their – they had such distinct styles, both of them. You know, Gales was – was just had this uh, had this charisma on the field. You know, you just watched him and you couldn't take your eyes off of him. And and Gibson, his what made him unique was was that intimidation factor. I mean, he just he was so athletic, so graceful, uh, almost violent on the mound in the way that he pitched. Uh, that he just scared the bejesus out of people and and forced you know forced dramatic changes in the game, including lowering the mound after his 1.12 ERA in 1968. So. Uh, you know, they really, really set the standard um, here locally for for what an athlete could do. And, you know, this was before Nebraska football became Nebraska football. I mean, this was – those two guys and others of their era were, were really the pride of the city and, and pride of the state. And like I wrote last week, I just think considering the circumstances of civil rights and segregation – uh, I just have a hard time believing that, that Nebraska is going to produce athletes of that impact, uh, let alone the talent, but the impact on top of it, because there was a, a five-year period there in the late 60s where where they were cultural forces. I mean, they were almost symbolic of what the black athlete could do uh, at a time that was very, very turbulent uh, for for blacks in across the country. Absolutely. Well, we got Husker football about to start. At least we hope if, if the testing protocols are all good, then they can get through that. What what uh, what would be in your eyes a successful 
eight or nine games Nebraska is going to get in this fall? Well, I mean, the, the, the schedule is, is really daunting, obviously. So I think you have, you have to consider that part of it. Uh, but I think, you know, I think six and three, five and four would be considered progress. Uh, anything over 500, I think, especially considering the circumstances. Uh, but I, I really do look at this as an opportunity for Nebraska. I mean, I think as much as you can go into a season saying there's no downside, uh, because there's always, you know, face it, there's there's always downside when you put in the time and, and people put in as much care as they do. Uh, but I think this is a huge opportunity fall for Nebraska. I mean, they're if uh, if you can pull off an upset there in the first few weeks, uh, even if it's the home game, you know against Wisconsin, uh, I think it's a huge boost to this program. I mean, you're just, I think everybody's just really waiting for them to waiting for them to win a game that they're not supposed to win, and they're going to have some big opportunities really early to do that. So, uh, you know, I think over 500 would be would be considered progress, but even more than that, I think Nebraska has a chance to win, you know, win a game or two that nobody expects them to win, uh, and I think that will do wonders for the confidence of this program. Going to be odd, isn't it, watching games from the Horseshoe or Memorial Stadium or the Big House with nobody there? It's going to be really odd, don't you think? It is going to be really odd, and and I don't know about you, but I was watching the SEC games on Saturdays, particularly the the A and M Florida game, and there's you know forty fifty thousand people in the stadium. Seemingly, I don't know if there was actually that many, but it sure seemed like there was. And you're just, it almost seemed weird to have the crowds at the game. So I think in contrast to what's happening in the SEC, um, you know the 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 crowd or lack of crowd, uh, lack of environment entirely at, at the Big Ten stadiums is going to be even more jarring. So, you know, I don't anticipate that the Big Ten ADs and coaches are going to persuade the league to to let more people in the stadium. Uh, but I. I do think that it would add a lot to the environment to just get 10 or 15,000 people, especially in some of these big stadiums, you know, like you just said, Ohio state, Penn state. Can you imagine playing, you know, playing a real college football game in in front of a stadium like that, where there are literally 100,000 empty seats. Uh, It's going to be, I think it will be a challenge motivationally in some ways uh, for some of these coaches to, to get their players to, to treat it like a real football game. Even to have the band and, and just some atmosphere from the band, which a lot I, a lot of the Big 12s have put their bands in. They really spread them out, but they're there. They they add a lot just to, I don't know, it's just going to be bizarre being at the Horseshoe in a week and nobody in there. Dirk, as always, well, we and, appreciate and you know, it. And you oh, know go what, ahead. Greg, sorry, Greg. I, I was just going to say, it, it's going to be a little reminiscent of the state championship games at, at Memorial mm-hmm. Stadium, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and it's the difference there is obviously those kids are, are absolutely thrilled to be there. Uh, whether there's 150 people in the stands or not, but but it is going to be a little different. And uh, like you, I, I wish, I hope they can find a way to put as many in as possible safely, of course. Uh, but I, I have a, a te- I have a feeling that the the you know the increase of the virus numbers are going to make that hard to pull off. Nope, I agree with you, Dirk. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care. Every Monday, we have a chance to check in with Adam Rittenberg. Great to have you with us, Adam. Hope you're doing okay here tonight. Wow, what a weekend for points, right, around the country, particularly in the SEC, some big times, almost some basketball-like scores this weekend. Right. I think the, yeah, the biggest one is that it's going to be hard to play defense this year, and the teams that do 
you know, and have something on offense to, to complement it are going to be really successful. You know, just in texting with some coaches that were watching the games, you know, it's kind of like, what's going on here? And they, they said, well, it was really hard to prepare for the season defensively with some of the rules around, you know, COVID limitations and, and just not having, um, you know, much time to hit one another. You're, you're seeing, you know, breakdowns, but some of them are not physical. I mean, it's mental. Uh, you look at what's happened at LSU and you know, Ed Orgeron talking today about how they may have to run one coverage just to make sure they can do something well instead of mixing it up. Um, so I think it's a combination of, of mental and physical, but then you also have really good you know, quarterback play and, and really good offenses. And it's been, uh, it's been ugly out there for most of the defenses. Sure was a uh, major upset happened at A&M Florida goes down. What, uh, what, uh, what do you think of that finish at that, in that game? Right, yeah. I mean, Florida was a team that obviously had put up great offensive numbers, but kind of what we were just talking about had some real concerns defensively going in. I mean, if you watch the Ole Miss game, uh, Ole Miss moved the ball on them. We saw what Ole Miss did to Alabama. Um, and uh, it just felt like Florida, I talked to defensive coordinator Todd Grantham last week, and he said, you know, my concerns are being able to stop the run without having to do anything fancy. We want a, a run defense out of our base and, and, and not have to, to throw a bunch of stuff at them. And, and they still were, were kind of getting, getting used to playing with this group. And, you know, I give A&M credit. I, I wrote about kind of what was wrong with them last week, and they were not very inspired in their first two games. Uh, but you, you look at what they were down, I think, 11 in the third quarter, and I really like the urgency that A&M played with on both sides of the ball uh, Kellen Mond, you know, who's had uh, you know a long career, but at times not 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 an overly distinguished one. You know, he was really good throwing the ball around to a mostly new new look receiving core. I love the the run from Isaiah Spiller on fourth down. I thought that was the play of the game until they forced the fumble there. But just, just you know, showing that they can they can convert in that situation and, and run the ball and impose their will on a defense was big. And then obviously on defense, you're coming up with that play towards the end against the Florida running back who had a really good game, forcing the fumble, and then Mon taking them downfield, and they managed the clock well and, and hit an easy field goal to win it. So that's a big one for A&M because they hadn't won a game like that in a while. And you look at the schedule coming up, it, it softens a bit for them. You know, they, they have Auburn and LSU at the end of the year, but both of those teams have looked quite vulnerable. So I'm not saying A&M is going to run the table, but uh, you know, their, their toughest test, Alabama, is now behind them, and they now have some momentum on their side. Big for Jimbo Fisher, right? I mean, signature-type win for him to kind of really tell everybody that he has that program going in the right direction. No doubt. And, I mean, they've recruited well, Greg. I mean, they had a top-five class, I think, a couple of years ago, a top-ten class last year. And you know, they're going to have to be a little bit more reliant on young players. They lost another receiver, uh, the kid that made the 51-yard catch in the end zone to tie the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, he's out for the season. And they already had several receivers either go to the draft or opt out. And so they're going to have to go a little young at receiver. But uh, yeah, it's big for Jimbo just to show to those fans that, hey, okay, you're paying me all this money. I'm able to deliver a signature win, I clearly can't beat Alabama, and that's certainly the next step. But even with talking with some folks at Alabama last week after the game, they didn't feel like that was as, you know, as big of a blowout as the final score indicated. So, you know, I think they had respect for A&M, and, and A&M, you know, showed, showed some improvement. Now they have to follow it up and be consistent and not lose to one of these teams that they should beat. That's going to be the interesting thing for them going forward, but definitely a big one for Jimbo Fisher. Adam, what kind of statement did, did Clemson make with their resounding win over the Canes on Saturday night? 
Yeah, I think an, you know an important one because you know Clemson is in the ACC where they a league they've absolutely dominated. They haven't lost a game in the ACC since I think 2017, and uh, you, know, you kind of forget about them. And you know the, the attention goes elsewhere, especially when the SEC is playing. And and you get Miami coming in. Miami had been playing well. You know, Derek King had been almost flawless in his first three games. Miami has some players who can go toe-to-toe with Clemson from a physical and talent standpoint, but you just saw the gap. You saw a team that, 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 that knew how to win and perform on a big stage and a team in Miami that still doesn't know how to perform on that same stage. You saw the discipline problems. They never got going offensively. And, and even when Clemson made, you know, I think Dabo admitted a bad decision to try to kick that long field goal at the end of the half, and Miami turn, returns it for a touchdown, it wasn't like that created any sort of real momentum for Clemson. So this is just a, a culture and a team that knows how to perform and win when, when, when they're challenged. And you can argue they have the best back. I mean, I don't think it's even an argument, Greg. They have the best offensive backfield in college football in, in, in Trevor Lawrence and, and Travis Etienne. Those are two NFL players who just happen to be playing college football, and that's, uh, that's bad news for all the defenses they have to play. Yeah, no doubt. Again, visiting Adam Rittenberg of ESPN.com. We're reviewing last weekend. And so you, that was the biggest game from last week. And the biggest game this week's obviously Georgia-Alabama. Can, can Georgia stack up against Bama? Or is this going to be another one of, of uh, Nick Saban teaching one of his old pupils another lesson? Yeah, I like what uh, Georgia coach Kirby Smart said earlier today when asked about that. He said, you know, who, who has a good record against Nick Saban? Everybody <laughs> brings up, you know, that the, none of the assistants beat him, but who actually has a good record? And other than, you know, maybe Dabo Sweeney and, and Urban Meyer and Gus Malzahn, nobody has, has really beaten Saban very often. But you know, I think this is a, a really good opportunity for Georgia. You know, Alabama, you know, you saw the vulnerabilities they had defensively last week against Ole Miss. And while Georgia's not that same offense, I think Georgia's finding, you know, their own stride a little bit under their new coordinator and, and Todd Munkin. And, you know, Stetson Bennett has, has come in surprisingly and, and played really well, uh, I think, for the most part for, for, for Georgia. They, you know, they're going to have to take advantage of all their opportunities to score because as good as Georgia's defense is, and they may be the best defense in the country, you look at what Alabama did offensively against Ole Miss. I mean, it was it was almost a perfect game. I think they only left, like, 41 possible yards that, that they could have gained in that game that they didn't. So, um, you know, that you just look at what they have from their offensive line, which meant many you regard as the best in college football, to, you know, their receivers with Jalen Waddell leading the way and the running backs go four or five deep. Mac Jones is playing really well so far at quarterback. You know, Georgia's going to have to generate some pressure. It's why I asked Kirby Smart today about the matchup between the Georgia defensive line and Alabama's offensive line. I think it's the, it's the key of the game. It's, you could even throw in the front seven of Georgia against that Alabama offensive line because nobody has really pressured Mac Jones. I think we'll find out just what type of quarterback he is uh, against this, this, this level of defense because they, they should be able to find – possibly ways to pressure, although Kirby was very complimentary of Alabama's offensive line, just saying they're massive. It's, it's almost as if they swallow you up. So I, I, if you're watching that game, and everyone should be this week, you'll pay attention to how Georgia attacks the, 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 the Alabama passing game and, and how they go after that offensive line because it's a really, really good one. But Georgia also can counter with some very high-level players on defense. Prime time in Tuscaloosa on Saturday night for that one. Want to ask you about Cincinnati visiting Tulsa. This could be a test for the Bearcats, couldn't it? I mean, Tulsa coming off a win over UCF. I think this could be an interesting battle for the Bearcats to see if they can slip back up into that top ten. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this game because I, 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 I kind of had forgot it was happening. But in talking to some uh, AAC coaches uh, you know, or, or, and also co- coaches that have faced Tulsa, they, they bring up this defense with, with Tulsa, which is very unique. They're, they're, they're big on that side of the ball, especially on the front. And Cincinnati hasn't been, uh, you know, an overwhelming offense so far this season. They win with defense. So I would expect a, a lower-scoring game between these two teams. You know, Tulsa, again, has given, beaten UCF uh, the last couple of years, given them a lot of trouble uh, with, with, you know, with a really good offense. And so Cincinnati's going to have to find ways to score, and then their defense is going to have to, you know, really match or exceed what, what Tulsa is doing. I mean, Tulsa was in a great position to upset Oklahoma State, uh, if they just hadn't made so many mistakes with penalties and poor poor coaching and, and things like that at times, you know, this could be a team with two signature wins. So you're absolutely right, Greg, for Cincinnati to continue this uh, undefeated season and, and their quest to get that New Year's Six bid. They, 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 they've obviously got to take care of business against Tulsa. Well, Adam, we were all waiting for the Big Ten to, to drop some scheduling news. They finally did today. It looks like they're going to try to get like five Friday games in. Good move on their part in your eyes? Yeah, I and mean, again, it, it's about it's about the inventory. And this year, yeah. you know, with with the decisions they made, you only have a limited number of weeks, and so you want to get some windows to, to showcase games. And I, I get that uh, people don't like these Friday games, but I think in a year where you don't have fans in the stands, and in some places you're not even playing high school football, um, I, I think that argument is a little bit moot to me. So uh, I, you know, it's, I know it's not what everybody wants to see in the Big Ten, but I, I know Nebraska is excited to play a game on on Black Friday. You know, it's been several decades that they've been able to do so, and, and they're able to continue that series with Iowa. You know, Wisconsin was already scheduled to open the season on a Friday night, I believe, against Indiana. Now that mm-hmm. game is against Illinois in Madison. So I don't. Ha- I've never had as big a problem with the Friday games as some Big Ten fans do because it gives. I, I always just like the chance to see teams in an exclusive window when there's not a million other things going on. I do understand the other side of the argument. I don't think that argument is as strong this year. Yep. Agree with you. Uh, wild Red River rivalry, wasn't it? I mean, that was a, I mean, there was a lot in that game. How, how damaging to Tom Herman was losing that one to Oklahoma on Saturday? Well, you know, again, I think the, the, the more damaging thing for him, honestly, was the first two, uh, the, the previous two weeks. So even the win over Texas Tech was a, was a very fortunate one and then, and then a loss to TCU. So, so j- j- just all, all told together, those three games are not helping his cause at all. Uh, I think Texas was, was, was impressive in fighting back and mm-hmm. finding a way to force that game into overtime. Obviously, Sam Ellinger. Uh, you know, has, has had uh, incredible numbers in that series, and you would think he would have a better record. I think it's an indictment of the Texas program when you look at Sam Ellinger's numbers in the Red River Showdown and the fact that he's 1-4 in, in that series. It should be better than that. And, uh, and that falls on the coaching staff. It falls on other elements of, the, of, of that team. But why aren't they better defensively? Why can't they run the ball at a higher rate? Why is their offensive line inconsistent? Why aren't they better at wide receiver? There's all sorts of things. But, it, you know, you talk to people, observers around the country, uh, you know, they, they point to the recruiting. It's not as if they've struggled from a recruiting standpoint, but they've struggled to get those guys to the next level. And, and that's why Tom is certainly in a lot of trouble right now in, in his fourth year as Texas coach. Yeah. All right, Adam, great stuff as always. We'll talk again next Monday. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Greg.
Let's narrow the focus a little bit, and we're about to the end of the line with our feature where we go around the Big Ten, checking in on all the different camps around the league. And speaking of camps, let's head up to Camp Randall. Tonight, we take a look around the Big Ten Conference, brought to you by Sinclair Oil Gasoline and Oil Products. Fill up your life and your vehicle with DinoCare. Sinclair's top-tier gasoline. Fields, looks, throws, middle of the field, toward the end zone, touchdown, Olave! 27 yards. 20, 10, touchdown! Touchdown, Illinois! He dodges a guy at the one and jumps into the end zone. Touchdown! Touchdown! Touchdown, Iowa! Stanley to Amir smith Marsh. 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Penn State! 72 yards! Tonight. Snap to Cohen. Michigan rushing four. Jack in some trouble. Eludes the rush. 25 20. Cone to the 10. Cone to the 5. Cone. Touchdown. Wisconsin. Jack Cone from 25 yards away. And the Badgers putting a beat down on Michigan in the first half at Camp Randall Stadium. The Wisconsin Badgers. And time to talk Badgers with a good friend Ben Wargle from Rivals. Uh, probably the news of the day from your camp, good sir, is that Wisconsin is going to open on a Friday. Your thoughts on uh, on the Badgers opening up with the Illini at home on a Friday night? Nice to finally have football to talk about, isn't yes. it? Um, especially yes. Especially after kind of the, the weird 2020 that we're going through. Now we know when they're playing, the time, and obviously going to be prime time. It's going to be a little weird being in Camp Randall for a night game, which Wisconsin's been so good over the last couple of years, but with being a completely empty stadium for the most part. And I, I know these players are looking forward to it. They've kind of been through the ringer here. I know it's been tough on them having to watch other conferences play. So they're excited to get back, and they're excited to play Illinois to start with. This is an uh, Illinois team that beat them in Champaign a year ago. I think they broke a nine-game uh, losing streak for the Badgers, so uh, Nakia Watson said, we, we owe these guys a butt whooping. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of uh, performance they will have here next week. Yeah, great point. And, and I think, uh, you know, everybody remembers that day in Champaign, just the, the, the shock nature of how that thing unfolded. Uh, ben, I think something that's made your, your uh, job probably pretty interesting the last few weeks is the quarterback position. Give us an update on uh, what Coach Christ is saying about that spot and, and really what the plan is moving forward. Yeah, so uh, Jack Cohen, their senior starter, who is probably going to be the bedrock of their offense, at least through this early part of the season, not the entire season, uh, hurt his foot in a non-contact injury uh, last Saturday, and he had surgery on Tuesday, so just just a little under a week ago, and he's going to be out indefinitely. Now, what does that mean? How long? You know, we don't know. We actually don't know what the foot injury exactly was. But what we do know is that uh, retro freshman Graham Mertz is – probably more likely than not going to be the, the starting quarterback. I know that excites a big portion of this fan base. Not that they didn't like Cone, but a lot of people have been drooling over this this Mertz kid for a number of years, ever since he committed and really kind of committed as an unknown prospect to a degree. He didn't have many offers, and by the end, he had offers from Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, uh, LSU. I mean, everybody pretty much was after this kid. And he stuck with his commitment to Wisconsin because he felt that the Badgers were the right fit for him across the board, and he felt that he could win a lot of games here. Well, we're gonna we're gonna see that from the very you know first opportunity he has this year. Played in two games last year, and he's going to be part of a youth movement with Wisconsin. They're gonna have a new running back. Um, with Jonathan Taylor now with the Colts. They're going to have a new wide receiver with Quintus Cephas with Detroit. 
Um, they're going to have a new interior line with three uh, offensive linemen having graduated or declared early from the draft. So this is going to be a new-look offense. So it kind of is almost fitting that they're going to have a, a brand-new quarterback in the mix, too. And uh, I'm interested to see what kind of chemistry this group is going to have. I think the intrigue, <clears throat> excuse me, the intrigue factor Wisconsin's amongst the highest around Big Ten football, just because of of the all the unknowns that you said. Um, what's what's the trail with with Mertz been like since being at Wisconsin? There were a lot of people that thought he would come in and maybe win that job his first year. Obviously, Cohn won that job and played very well for the Badgers last year, but. What, what's the sense that you're getting from him about what he learned last year and what he's going to be asked to do with this new-look Badger offense? Well, Graham was very blunt last year in saying that he wasn't ready to play. Um, you know, coming from uh, Blue Valley North High School in Kansas, they, the offenses were a little bit different, a little bit, you know, you know kind of apples to oranges to a degree. So him enrolling uh, last spring, spring of 19, helped him to kind of get a jump start on what he was going to have to learn. And people were trying to make it a quarterback competition the previous fall, but it never really was close to that. I mean, it was going to be Jack's job if he performed well, and he performed extremely well. But Graham was there every step of the way and learned a lot from what Jack Cohn is, was able to do on the field, how he prepared. And the numbers statistically were very good for Cohn a year ago. So 2,700 passing yards, uh, completed nearly 70% of his passes, an 18-5 to touchdown-interception ratio. I mean, he was a very solid, reliable uh, playmaking type quarterback and I think Mertz having been able to watch that for a year and still play in two games to get a little his feet wet a little bit has really kind of helped kind of uh, formulate some confidence in him that he knows he can go out there and he can kind of buy into that type of quarterbacking system that Wisconsin likes to run and also air it out a little bit I mean, he's got a very lively arm he's extremely talented people who watched the u.s army all-american game a couple of years ago and saw him throw five touchdown passes this kid can complete passes to all three levels and like i said he doesn't lack confidence which i think is critical that spot especially for a redshirt freshman um very fun-loving guy uh very down-to-earth guy to a degree too um but still he, he's going in there and he feels that he can really command this offense and i think the guys around him are going to feed off that Ben, let's let you go with a with a question on the defense. With all the uncertainty and, and the changing over of of part to part with with Wisconsin's offense, even from year to year, one thing that's always been known is that this is a very stout group uh, on defense, particularly in the front seven. What are you expecting from the Badgers' D, particularly early in the season? Uh, they, they could be scary good this year. I mean, this this could be their best defense since the Big Ten championship team of, of 2012, where. They just basically were just grinding out games. And, and Wisconsin had some really good defenses here the last couple of years, too, top five units as well. But this group just has a sense that this could be a team that could limit a lot of opponents to two scores or less. I mean, they return everyone uh, from the defensive line. They return all their corners, pretty much all their safeties. Um, the, the, they have some holes uh, at inside linebacker and outside linebacker, but you know, returning nine of eleven stars and a lot of depth. I mean, it, it's going to be a really solid, well-rounded unit on paper, and you know, we'll see early on. I mean, their, their schedule early is, is fairly tough. I mean, Illinois at the start, then at Nebraska week two, and then probably their toughest game is week four at Michigan. Um, you know, Minnesota is at home, so that's early in the year. So there's some tough games early. Uh, that will test this group, especially on the road. And I think this group, this defense, knows that the offense is maybe in transition a little bit, that a lot of eyes will be on them to 
play near perfect football. And I think this group is embracing that challenge. And uh, I, I kind of put their money on that. I think they can deliver. Yeah, well said. Ben Wargle from Rivals helping us break down the Badgers here on the Big Ten Blitz. Ben, thanks so much. Uh, enjoy covering football, man. You'll have a game here at Camp Randall before you know it, and, and you can write about that as opposed to chasing down the next rumor. Thanks so much for giving us some time. Take care, guys. Thanks for having me.